And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast. At the top of the show today, we have a very special announcement. Our return to live events. We are proud to host the Meme in the Moment Festival, New York City's first ever festival of memes at Caveat New York City on Tuesday, August 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Memes have taken center stage in the world, but are we influencing memes or are they influencing us? The Meme in the Moment is a festival of memes with the Internet's most critical, fun, and engaging meme thinkers. We are bringing together academics, journalists, strategists, and speakers to help us understand how memes influence our daily lives, how memes travel from the Internet into physical spaces, and how we can strengthen our cultural immune response to memes at a moment where memes are so central to discourse. We are thrilled to announce a prolific lineup of speakers, including Garbage Day's Ryan Broderick, Vox Internet Culture reporter Rebecca Jennings, NBC Internet Culture reporter Callan Rosenblatt, writer, brand strategist, and cultural theorist Jenny Chang, and cultural strategist and researcher Dr. Anastasia Karklina Gabriel. The Meme in the Moment Festival will be hosted by cultural theorist and strategist Matt Klein. You can join us live from Caveat NYC or via live stream. Tickets are going quickly and available now at caveat.nyc, or you can find a link at digitalvoid.media. This event is strictly 21 plus. For more about Caveat NYC, here is Caveat Booking Manager Alex Liu, who has been so helpful and instrumental in helping us develop the meme in the moment. Caveat as a venue, it's a place that focuses on nerdy nightlife and smart, informative entertainment. So one of our taglines is to get a little bit smarter and a little bit drunker, uh, which I think describes what we do pretty well. Basically, this is a space where people can host shows about things that they're passionate about and like bring in that niche community to talk about that niche subject or niche interest that they've always wanted to nerd out about, but in a show format. So generally what people say is that they feel like it's a very, uh, like not just like a physically safe space, uh, but also like a mentally safe space. Like, you know, they're, they, they're comfortable being here. Uh, and yeah, walk, walking into the space, they, feel like it's it's so it's so like classy you know and not classy in the way of like oh we're pretentious or anything uh people actually say that we do a great job of you know uh, presenting smart and informative shows in a way that is not pretentious and not like exclusionary which i think is a great piece of feedback thank you so much to alex and yes, this is going to be a fantastic celebration of memes, and we are delighted to host it at Caveat NYC. As we prepare for Meme in the Moment, we want to dedicate our next several episodes leading up to the event to conversations about memes and how they are so central in our discourse and to understanding culture at this particular moment. We asked researcher and writer Garrison Davis to join Jamie and I in conversation for a discussion about the evolution of a white nationalist meme, White Boy Summer. Davis is a writer for Uprising, a guide from Portland, a researcher for the Behind the Bastards podcast and the Worst Year podcast, and a writer for Bellingcat. Garrison Davis, thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Void podcast. Jamie and I both read your article, White Boy Summer, Nazi Memes, and the Mainstreaming of White Supremacist Violence. Uh, and a content warning at the top of this discussion, we will be discussing some very graphic themes, and we certainly encourage listener and audience discretion. So at the very top of our outline, as we're recording, Nick Fuentes was just banned Yay! from Twitter. <laughs> yes, <I'm> very exciting. <laughs> so we definitely want to get into that and why that's important and exactly who that is on this episode. But to start, Garrison, what motivates you to do the incredibly difficult and important work you do? And how did you begin your work? Well, let's see. I think it, it's very much tied to where I uh, live and where I grew up. Because I mean, like, you know, I was 
as I was becoming a teenager, we started to have more and more Nazi rallies in Portland. Um, and you know, we had like, yeah, when I was, when I was like, I don't know, 14, 15, like a Nazi killed two people on like a transit train that we have in the city. So, you know, it's always just kind of been a part of growing up here is I'm always, yeah, you're, just, you're always exposed to like this type of fascism and like Oregon specifically has, you know, a long history of far-right extremism, of, of white supremacy, and also of, you know, it has a has a, has a a pretty long history, like going back to like the 80s and stuff of, um, uh, of, of countering that, that type of rhetoric and countering uh, fascists, whether, whether you're doing stuff like online, uh, whether doing like, you know, uh, campaigns, um, or, or, you know, opposing them physically in the street. That's a, that's a big part of, that's, that's a big part of the his city and the history of the city. So yeah, I mean, there was, there was no escaping it. And yeah, I just thought, yeah, that's this, all of the Nazis seem like a problem that, that seems like something that probably shouldn't be happening. And yeah, I mean, I, I've always been interested in like online investigations, um, in like, you know, in kind of, a in studying culture, like anthropology and stuff. So a, a few years ago, I took some uh, Bellingcat classes for how to do like open source intelligence work. And then I met Robert over the course of uh, last summer in Portland, and we started working together on a few projects. And one of them is just this kind of, you know, random, random Bellingcat work. Um, and, uh, you know, it's random work looking into far right extremism, far right terrorist attacks, like mass shootings and like looking for like why these things happen and how memes and culture and video games and media are like integral parts to like how this how this culture got set up like 10 years ago um and how it's how it, it's it's still it's still continuing so yeah that's kind of that's kind of the, the, the short version of how i got to this point and why i spend you know like why i stay up till 9 a.m on telegram scrolling through memes um <laughs> That's, yeah, doing, doing the doing the work that saves us from doing that. Really, it's a not a place that we should be visiting. If you you have to have the the metal to to be in those Telegram channels to to really do that OSINT work that you're working on. Uh, that's so. Thank you for, for doing that. And and it really is like I'm glad you're here today and I'm glad you're doing this work. We actually we uh, previously had spoken to David Nywer, okay, cool. uh, who gave us the long history of Oregon's, basically it's Oregon's origin, yes. uh, <laughs> which, which in and of itself embeds uh, white supremacist rhetoric into it. And it's this constant tension between the good uh, and the good faith versus the, the underbelly that kind of burbles up like fascism does in Italy every so often. You yep. know, it's like, it just kind of lives in its structure. And so it's, uh, that's, it's good to, bring it to air, you know, bring that light, because if you don't, it, it goes and becomes uh, the, the, the reality. That's uh, your work. So, so, the, so a couple things just to, to get out of the way before we get into this. So some terms so we can make sure that whoever's listening kind of gets some of this, because a lot of this is like uh, kind of esoteric to this field, but it's really something that Josh and I have been working on for a while, because last summer when we were in the middle of the lockdowns, we decided we were going to do two meme literacies workshops. And both were focused on identifying and recognizing dog whistle memes. And that we felt was a, a good tool for uh, for the, the regular layperson to kind of get a handle on. However, I often feel like, uh, as been mentioned on some news places, like sometimes when you, you don't recognize dog whistles or maybe you become aware of them, you start seeing them everywhere rather than start in uh, understanding them. And so when you're mentioning like how white supremacy kind of becomes the, the structure, it's kind of like hides in the background until, until it doesn't. And so can you first uh, go over who are some of these characters who like, so we were talking today on a, on a day that just hours ago, Nick Fuentes gets banned from Twitter, which is uh, as Jared Holt said, four years too late. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Who, who is Nick Fuentes? Oh, and God. <laughs> before we get into White Boy Summer, what what is he and why did it take so long to get him off Twitter? Yeah, that's, I mean, I can answer the first part better than the second part. Um, I, I do not know what took him so long to get off Twitter because he should have been off Twitter in August 20, of 2017. Yeah, uh, so Nick Fuentes was yeah. a weird internet kid, not unlike myself, who decided he wanted to be a media personality 
And so he started producing a little show um, in his uh, in his parents' house. I, th- I think I think in their garage or something called America First, which was like a political talk show ran by this weird, creepy teenager. And he was he, he wasn't a big deal for a while, but all of the other major kind of like far right or Nazi uh, or like like like, like far right or like openly Nazi um, talk show type people all got all got banned um, around the same time. And Nick was really the only one left because he had his YouTube channel for quite a long time. So when everyone else got banned and there was a lot of weird drama between these different like um, far right kind of like talk show type things, Nick Fuentes kind of picked up a pretty sizable audience because he was the he was one that maintained a pretty large platform. Uh, the, the, the podcast, uh, I, I don't speak German, lays out how he specifically got so big in a really interesting way. Because like you can listen to like their older episodes when Nick Fuentes is still kind of a nobody, and they're just like you know like joking about this weird kid who like goes on these like um, who goes on like these big video chats with like these other these other like you know like pretty pretty like large like like large figure fascists. And he's just like this random kid, and then you slowly got to see these like large fascists get the, all of their accounts banned. Um, but Nick was always still there, so you got to see him kind of just like rise rise through the ranks. And yeah, in in the wake of like identity Europa, Richard Spencer, like uh, Christopher Cantwell, and all of those like people, and all of their various friends with their YouTube shows, all 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 getting all getting yeeted off the internet, um, Nick just remained. He, his YouTube channel got banned like over, oh, I think I think over over like a year ago, um, and he's been like on D Live and on. Uh, on bit shoots since then but yeah it's the, the first time nick like penetrated into like mainstream internet culture or like even mainstream political culture was the catboy cami thing that was the big thing that got like normies to know who he was um and then he was an integral part in the january 6th um uh, insurrection and his his fan base online is one of the more rabid fan bases that do harassment campaigns on people the uh, the uh, groipers, the groipers, who yeah, who we've talked about, who are kind of a odd play on Pepe the Frog. They weaponize memes in a way very similar to the way that uh, the Boogaloo Boys would, yes. but in a very almost uh, baroque way or almost like a, a maximalist way, with these ridiculous sized hats and these very out front attitudes. And, and their America First movement isn't hidden; they're 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 in your face memers yep. you know, it, it's yeah <laughs> so they're not foreign to any of these ways of, of weaponization of these themes yeah they are they are on the front lines of the so-called meme war this there's 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 one joke me and robert uh talk about when we're depressed for spending hours on telegram or like talking about the talking about like the meme war and people like sh- shooting shooting off rare pepes and like mortars full of i don't know dumb just listing all the dumb memes for seg and a- acting like they're weaponry uh because to a lot of a lot of people that it, it, it is like an information like war and you know the harassment campaigns can be pretty intense yeah they can so i want to talk about this incredible piece you put together for bellingcat and bellingcat is a really a fantastic outlet for os intelligence if you could talk a little bit about the work that has to be done for bellingcat too because it really is when i when i say that you're doing the heavy work. It really is that. People who do the type of work for Bellingcat really are learning things about how to get in deep, kind of observe and gain information from online spaces that are truly somewhat inaccessible to the mainstream for good reason. And yep. and yeah, you know, we need these it's I always say this to my students, you, you can't unsee things. So it's you can't, you know, you want to make sure that you're only seeing what's being kind of uh, journalistically distributed to you and your work here in, yep. in, <laughs> in this article. <laughs> do do not research these things yourself, Absolutely. Uh, at least not like immediately. You have to like get a lot of prep work first. You have to have like a good like support base. You need to know what you're looking for. Yeah, because it can, it can be like really bad if you just like jump head first into these things. Oh, 100%. I had a, a recent PhD student actually ch- was doing work on far-right extremism and had to change because... There's no actual academic support structure for young academics who are going to do this. There's no, when you have advisors who actually don't know what the term like fash wave might mean, they don't know how to protect you. And then if you end yep. up saying the wrong thing in a telegram channel, it it's, you need a professional to, to do this. Yep. 
Yeah, and thank you. So your article, White Boy Summer, Nazi Memes and the Mainstreaming of White Supremacist Violence, is a fairly long form article that's a deep dive into a very specific piece of internet media that has gone awry, so to speak, and has become a uh, a new meme that is perverted into something that's now a calling card for this American First movement, and now expanding outward to ingest politicians, to uh, extremists, potentially what, what would be considered a terrorist. Can you tell us, can you frame this a little bit? Where did White Boy Summer come from? And what was the work you did to uncover a lot of where it's become evolving in these dark areas? I mean, yeah, like I, I, I knew of, I mean, of course, people got relatively familiar with the term White Boy Summer because of the Chet Hanks video and sub and subsequent music video. But it kind of like, I don't know, it, it got popular for like a few weeks there. But then it just kind of died down from like being in mainstream internet culture. Like, you know, p- part of part of me and like all my friends like knew it. Like we we always knew Nazis were going to use it because like of course they will. It's called White Boy Summer. Like, it's, of course it's going to get used by 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 fascists and racists. But when it when it's just like when it's just internet memes and it's just like obscure people in very small chat rooms sending stuff back and forth, it's not really worth talking about because then you're just amplifying something unnecessarily. And there's there's really no point. But so yeah, like a few weeks ago, I think like early like last month, one of uh, a fellow researcher friend sent me links to a a, a bit shoot video, which was like a mass shooting video that ha- that had like in- inter- incorporated parts of like the Chet Hanks White Boy Summer thing, and it was titled White Boy Summer, but it was all about how uh, it was all about inciting a mass shooting on July Fourth specifically. Um, they had footage of a. They had a whole bunch of obscure footage from like Nazi mass shooters, manifestos and stuff, like tr- like training footage, footage of the shootings itself, footage that like they probably shouldn't have. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that's like really hard to find, and the fact that they have it, they they like saw this out a lot. I so yes, yeah, so I was sent. I was sent this video, and then I went through kind of a, a rabbit hole on BitChute of looking at all the different types of white boy summer kind of propaganda videos we had. You know, you had like the typical like Patriot Front type stuff. You had stuff from like RAM, the Rise Above movement. They had like they had um, White Boy Summer type videos, and, you know. So you, there, there, there was like a sizable list of things. Uh, so yeah, I talked to Robert about it. We decided that it's probably worth looking into a little bit more, and then we just spent a few days on Telegram and 4chan. I, I initially pulled up all the 4chan, uh, all, all like the 4chan um, stuff about it. So when like the Chet Hanks video first came out, there was like a lot of debate on 4chan on whether or not this meme should be utilized. Or whether they, because like there's a lot of people, not a lot of people, like four people, because it's fortune. But like you know, there's, there's like, like a decent amount of people for like a, for that space was talking about how it's like how it's probably going to be like a setup or something stupid. It's like no, they want us to use this meme, and it's like part of the deep state thing because Tom Hanks and you know QAnon type stuff for. People are scared of Tom Hanks. Anyway, Four Chan was kind of was kind of a dead end. Um, it didn't materialize much on there. They they were mainly just debating if the meme should be used at all. Meanwhile, Telegram, uh, which has like a you know a very different base of people, like the Four Chan users, Telegram users, I mean, there is crossover, but they are, they, there is a lot of uh, distinction. The Four Chan ones were busy debating while telegram was hitting off with lots of memes um so like in april and in may when the memes were spiking there was like a decent uptick but then stuff kind of went down and then it started getting talked about by like nick fuentes on twitter um he started using the term and then we started the thing that really worried me besides the mass shooting video that we found initially was the preparations for like in-person rallies so there were like there were there were two in-person white boy summer rallies planned in june um, neither of them happened, but there was like, a considerable force behind behind them. There was whole like Telegram channels dedicated to organizing these rallies. Uh, before we got the Bellingcat article published, we contacted Telegram and we got those channels taken down. We got a few other channels taken down as well. One of the I think we got one of the Zoomer Waffen or Fashwave channels taken down as well, which both both of those were pretty large at the time. There's like replacements now, but they aren't they aren't, they aren't as big. It fascinates me that you're able to even get Telegram channels taken down too. So it does show that like there are ways yeah. of alerting that platform that some things are above and beyond even what is can be considered like bad, like much worse than bad speech. You know, it's really bad. Yeah. After the, after January 6th, Telegram made like a public thing about wanting to put more work into shutting down these networks. Um, and like they kind of tried, but the way Telegram is used to how you can just make a new channel with the same name 
And the way that you can forward channels via other channels makes it really hard to just stop it altogether yeah. because they're going to be constantly moving channels. So it's it's always kind of like you're always just trying to like chase the rabbit and the rabbit's just a little bit faster than you. Yeah. So eventually you can cut off certain roadways, but the rabbit's always going to be a little bit ahead. So that, 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 that is a tough battle, but it's it's possible. Well, I'm glad you've done it. I mean, that's there is, as we all know, uh, there is an absolute benefit to deplatforming. When we look at charts of access to uh, some of the far right figures that have been deplatformed, you see an audience subtraction of a, quite an amount, which also leads to less proliferation. So it does work. I do want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about good faith, bad faith, and people who aren't prepared to access this information. One of the things Josh and I noticed last summer, we were dealing with the the dog whistle memes and the memes in which some people are are taking like bad memes in good faith, or even Nick Fuentes in good faith and using it as a both sides type of argument. What do you think's missing there? Why do you think uh, news journalists, is, is it ratings? What do you think people want to access that wants to tell this story when if they're not prepared to do it, they're accidentally amplifying some of these bad faith arguments directly into spaces that can't actually ingest them or interpret them in a, in a meaningful way? It's, it's difficult when you're not seeped in the thing to really get what is real and what's not because a lot of, yeah, because like, because everyone's so irony pilled for, especially, especially like the Nick Fuentes group, it's just, if you're not constantly living in the hell world, you can't make sense of it. <laughs> um, so someone like may think something's really, you know, like, so like a more like mainstream journalist might think something's really important and dangerous, but they not realize that like, it's a specific thing that has a lot of like, backstory and is it isn't really what they think so they're going to amplify it because they think it's important but really it's not i mean that, that's that's the thing about you know reporting this type of thing is that for a while like you know i have lots of like things that i haven't talked about right like i have lots of things saved onto an encrypted hard drive i have lots of things like saved onto like encrypted files that i'm not going to talk about publicly until i think they're necessary right there's lots lot, lots of these types of things you just need to keep secret for a little bit because maybe it'll blow over, maybe it won't, but it's important to still be monitoring it. So I think more important than like trying to like always get stuff out is like knowing when to not talk about things because there's some things that should not be talked about because either you're going to amplify them or you're going to get people who know a little bit about them to learn much more in a way that's unhelpful or you'll just introduce a, a, a new dangerous piece of propaganda to Nazis who will then utilize it a whole lot. So yeah, that's why it's that's why I mean, yeah, people in like the terrorism research field, like the the, the side the, the side that I'm on, you know, there, there's like the weird the, the weird internet cult stuff um, are generally pretty frustrated for the way this kind of topics are handled by most mainstream media outlets um, and by a whole lot of other you know like more liberal terrorism researchers as well. It's it can be it can be kind of frustrating to watch from the sidelines and see people make a whole bunch of mistakes, which makes our job a whole lot harder. But yeah, that that was like even for the White Boy Summer article, we had like a lot of debate with the Bellingcat editors about what stuff we should include, what stuff we shouldn't, and like figuring out you know j justifying the article's existence in the article just so people know why we're talking about it in the first place because because of you know the stuff that's branching out into like politicians because of uh, Nick Fuentes's like um, like White Boy Summer tour because of the increase in talking about planning rallies. Um, and just the increase in like rhetoric around like um, killing protesters, like like killing like BLM protesters. We thought this is something that's spreading where we're watching already. I think it's it's going to be more useful to try to educate other researchers, educate people who so that they know what to look for in case someone who they're monitoring talks about this stuff as well. And we can tie it together like, OK, they're sharing this specific obscure thing that is actually pretty bad because this ties back to, you know, this weird mass shooting video, this ties back to, you know, this, um, you know, this inc increased organizing around trying to do in-person events, which will end up in people getting like assaulted and hurt. So yeah, it, it, it just barely tipped in favor of talking about the white boy summer memes for like, you know, a platform as big as Bellingcat. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting and important is about 40% of the way through the article, you speak about a pivotal turn in the evolution of the meme. And that is the moment where white boy summer became commodified by a Nazi lifestyle brand called Asgard brand. Yes. And Asgard brand co-opted the fascist aesthetic of vaporwave and the Nazi occultist symbol, the Sonorad. Can you walk us through the commodification of White Boy Summer and how the commodification helped to mainstream the meme itself and maybe who the ads were reaching? Yeah, the whole commodification of 
Nazi stuff is really interesting. I, I, I did a really big deep dive into that like on early 2021. Um, I guess as, as late 2020, for I, I did a few episodes of Behind the Bastards on uh, the Rise Above movement and like that particular intersection of like fascists who have clothing stores. Um, and it's a real, it's a real weird side of the internet. Robert was the one that did the research for the Asgard stuff specifically. So I, I do not know how, I, I don't know his exact process for what he had besides what he shared with me in writing the article, but it, it'll, it, it ties back to how Telegram works in terms of a platform and how you, how forwarding posts work on Telegram and how they connect obscure channels to bigger channels and make the obscure channels have a lot, have a much bigger audience. So yeah, so like a, a Asgard brand saw that people were talking about White Boy Summer in terms of memes. They're like, oh, we can make money off of this. So you just slap us on and red on a t-shirt, put the put like a white put a vaporwave text on it, and there it is. Um, you know, we see a similar thing with um, uh, the Hammer, the, the the Hammer Nazi channel, who uh, I did some work on earlier this year for uh, when Robert did the article on um, uh, Riley, the person who we found out was doing like Heil Hitler salutes in a video and then stormed the Capitol. She was she's a pic- there's a picture of her and Nick Fuentes. She's a grow a groper. She was in Nick. She was in Nick Fuentes's uh, Discord channel. She was actually grooming children in that in that channel. That's something I'm going to talk about eventually. That 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 did not make it into the article Robert posted. But she was like grooming um, minors in that channel as well. Which that happens a lot in Nick Fuentes's channels because he has a he has like he has like a big um, kid base of of fans. It's 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 real bad. Uh, more of a reason for why he should be deplatformed on on everything. But yeah, so like it's like uh, she uh, so the Riley had you know hammer m- merchandise. That's how we kind of helped. Uh, I I found out that the glasses she was wearing were glasses that this Nazi guy was selling on Telegram. Um, same thing with the mask she was wearing in the Heil Hitler salute video. So I did work on that earlier this year. Um, and it's it's a similar thing. It's it's about there are people like trying to sell stuff on Telegram specifically. So it's trying to get people who are influential to share your Telegram posts so that people can buy your crappy merchandise. And it happens a lot. There's there's like a lot of weird Nazi merch on Telegram. It's like a big thing. That that would take me a bit to process. It's it, it's it almost reminds you like when you would go in the to those very strange and awkward uh, flea markets next to train stations. There was always that guy. There's that one guy who's selling Nazi stuff, and and you'd always be like, oh, that's that's the guy you don't really go near, and he's collected all this material. And now it's like kind of mainstreamed into these channels where people are doing like this paraphernalia of collectorship of this stuff, this type of information. And I think what's, what worries me, what, what your research has shown is Nick Fuentes's age group. And he is designed specifically as pilling the teenage groups. You know, yeah. he, his, his distinct goal is to aim for a younger Zoomer, like a, the, Zo- the Zoomer aged grab to pill them to a point of no return. Yeah, like ages like 13 to 25 uh, is, is, his, is his ideal bracket. It's it's just so. There was a Ben Collins thread that came out about I think it was 2019 at this point. He did a bit for Luke O'Neill's uh, Substack, and he actually talked about his fear, which is his worry that there that that the teens were already fully pilled, and he didn't. We don't have a way of knowing it because it's so well embedded that it was part and part of how things operate. And I, I at the time Fuentes was probably at his the point of the red the big red hat period, and it was and I was very concerned that platforms themselves couldn't see this as a future issue, that this was poison in the, in the, the future. I actually want to, on that note, I kind of want to talk about the aesthetic of it because the aesthetic is something we talked, we, we actually, we had Grafton Tanner on a while ago to talk about this era that we're in now, which throws us back into this nostalgic era of unreality and most specifically vaporwave that this new age uh, style of the eighties VHSE. Uh, hot color image becomes kind of this fashion aesthetic too. Can you tell us from your research how did vaporwave bend into the fashion wave? Yeah, the the vaporwave thing is really interesting. It's like the big the big problem with that is that it's a really easy onboarding ramp. It's like the the problem is like it's a whole lot easier for a conservative kid to go down to the Nick Fuentes 
pilled rabbit hole than to become a moderate conservative. With with the caveat, if the kid is online. Now, thank thankfully, a lot of conservative kids are not online tons, which is great. <laughs> but for the ones that are online, it's way easier to go down Stephen yeah. Crowder to Ben Shapiro to Nick Fuentes than it is to just stay on Ben Shapiro. Because because of the way the internet works, the internet rewards extremism. The internet rewards someone having the hottest take. So if, when someone says the hottest take, you're like, oh, this new extreme thing is what someone's saying. This must be correct because, it, because it's not what has been said before. So whatever the most extreme option is, that's going to be the one that's going to be assumed to be most correct because of the way internet culture functions, whether this is like shipping culture, or this is like fanfic culture, whether this is like, we even see elements of this on like the left. Um, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't exclusive to the right wing. It's like whatever the, whatever the like thing that people are saying the least of, when I hear it for the first time, I will assume that's probably correct because it's not, it's not, it's not what's talked about, which is why you see a lot more, so that's why I see a lot less like social Democrats now as you did four years ago, right? For four years ago, someone like me and like, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, became, you know, like democratic socialist types. And now we are beyond that because they're like, no, that's, that's obviously not enough to alter the world in the way that which we wanted to make it, you know, better for people. Now, of course, I'm more interested in like equality and they're not being Nazis and the Nazis are interested in genocide. So there's like, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not like a horseshoe theory thing because they're very different, but it, it's a similar process in terms of how the internet works and how people shift from ideology to ideology. You know, there's even like a meme that I see all the time on political Twitter of like a 14 year old who like lays out his like 10 ideologies he's subscribed to over the course of his life. And you're like, you're just so terminally online. You're like, in 2014, I was a, I was a Trotskyist. Then I became a national Bolshevik. Then I became a national socialist. Then I became a Stalinist. Then I became, it's like, it's like, it's this weird memification of political ideologies that is so easy to go down. And it's like, whatever is the newest, most extreme one, that's the one I'm going to adopt because that's where all the cool people are. Oh, and that's... God, it's amazing. It's horrible. It's bad. Yeah, oh no. It's, I mean, amazing <laughs> like, as an enlightening. I, yeah. That memification of political ideologies is a phrase that I really wish we didn't ever even have to say. No. Like, we, sh- <laughs> we, sh- <laughs> we shouldn't have to talk about it. But no, we're like, it totally exists, especially on Twitter. Twitter is one of the worst places for that. Because it's where everyone hangs out, so we get a giant like ocean of ideologies that people can try on, almost like fashion. Um, you can yes. like try it on for a little bit, see if it works, see how many like reacts you get, see how many friends you get, see how many followers you get. When you talk about this thing, if it's not enough, you can always shift to a new ideology really easily and pick up like a new friend base, a new social circle. It's really easy. It's like fashion. It's memes. It's all. It's all the same thing. It's all. It's it's all aesthetics. Yes. And for for vaporwave, because vaporwave got very popular like four years ago. The same time, you know, Stranger Things got popular. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like this weird version of the eighties that never existed. And I think we can mostly blame Adam Waffen for vaporwave becoming a key part of Nazi propaganda. Because that, that's that's what they they started using like that like digital decaying propaganda style with like the skull masks, and then eventually it branched out into vaporwave in general. And now with like White Boy Summer, we have like very like bright vaporwave, you know, like Florida like Florida vaporwave. It's like um so like the thing with yeah. like the thing with the Asgard brand is like Asgard isn't necessarily like for someone who's just like a farther right type who's not like seeped in fascist or Nazi culture. Asgard's like oh whatever it's like. You know, it's 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 um it's about like Norse mythology, whatever. That's fine. A shirt that says "White Boy Summer" in a cool font, not explicitly Nazis. It has some soldiers on it. Now we know that these are like Rhodesian soldiers, so that is tied to a whole bunch of stuff. But someone, you know, most people probably don't know that. Um, at least if at least if you're newer. So they were like, oh yeah, this this has some decent designs. I'll 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 get it. Yes, their logo is kind of son and ratty, but eh, whatever. Um, and then you'll see other other posts from the same Asgard channel that is in like the vapor the vaporwave aesthetic with the um, McCluskey guy, the guy who pointed guns at BLM demonstrators who are marching next who, marching past his house. So you now have memes of him, and those memes can get shared to a f- f- way broader range of people than just the Sonnenrad memes, because like the Sonnenrad memes have a very limited scope for audiences, people who know what they are. But you can share the other ones with any kind of conservative channel. You can sh- share with Trump channels, mega channels any kind of like zoomer conservative channel you can share that and it's fine and then someone will click on it go go to the channel um and then you'll see all the like explicit nazi stuff on the asgard thing so that's how like the memes branch out it's like you you need to have a little bit of like memes that can appeal to a normie base and then 
they'll find your channel that way, and then you can start pilling them on harder topics. This is the way internet radicalization has worked in the past 10 years. It's the same thing. We just we just change platforms. Now now we're doing it on Telegram. You know, it used to be on 4chan. Um, it's just changing the platform that it's on. McCloskey has been a subject of Josh and I, our work in Carlson, because we, we talk a lot about media martyrdom on this podcast. We talk about um, self-victimization and then the grift that amplifies that and how there's there's a re- like i'm being persecuted oh by who by you and it's like they, they could just say that and the media takes that as good faith oh okay and then it becomes persecution by the act of doing that cough andy no cough oh, oh i mean you're you're in proximity so yes I mean, <laughs> so I, I i appreciate your work even for just being in that region uh, yeah i mean uh, talk about the master of the grift of self-victimization he's he's incredible at it yep he, mccloskey did this act that put him literally on the same stage as Sandman and others on the stage. But they're in the same thing, yeah. Yeah, to allow them to be in this this heroic position of martyr. And one of these memes remind me of like the way that you would want to onboard somebody as in like literally the way martyrdom would work, which is like dying for that cause. And it almost seems like a very updated, very 2021 version of the willingness to give all for something that almost means nothing, but these, it's, it, it almost seems so shallow. And I, I, I'd like to just go on to this thing about why do you think like, are Carlson and DeSantis, are they part of this? Are they aware of this? Are they riding this wave of grift? Or do you think it's just their, their bystanders to the grift of this aesthetic, mimetic shareability? That's, yeah, that's, that's tricky. Cause I mean, there's enough things that there's enough things that Carlson says that I'm sure someone on his staff knows what's going on and is making him say these things to attract a, a specific audience. It's like he's very intentional in his rhetoric. He's very intentional in what he doesn't say but expresses in other ways. Um, I know as, as some people may have issues with John Oliver's show for other reasons, but his one, his episode on T- Tucker Carlson is actually very good. Um, he did, he actually did a really great job of breaking down what, of, of how T- Tucker specifically appeals to white nationalist rhetoric in very, in very specific ways. So T- T- Tucker absolutely mm-hmm. knows what's going on, or at least someone on his writing staff does. Cause like, I'm sure Tucker is more interested in money than anything else but he just sees this as a viable grift um, or sees this as, as a viable way to get an audience. Or he's actually hungry for political power and wants to run for president. Who knows? It, it could be that as well, which is also like extremely terrifying. But yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like the age old debate. Is this person like genuine or are they a grifter? Are they, are they stupid or are they a fascist? It's like, you just, it's, it's the thing that people will always debate about. And there's never like going to be a answer. Cause it's like, it's probably both. Like it's probably both to some degree, because when you're advocating for these things, you know what their consequences are going to be. Um, so he's like, you know, like Andy No knows what the consequences of his beliefs are. He's, a, you know, he's he's hung around Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys. He's hung around them as they plan to assault he's people. Like probably given kill lists to Adam. Yeah, he's he, he's he, he, he self edited like um, lists of of journalists that should be offed. Like mm-hmm. he's like he knows the consequences of his actions. He's just okay with it. He wants it because I mean he did grow up pretty conservative, um, or he's just happy that it's paying his bills right now. And it's always weird, but like the, the one thing you did mention about like becoming like martyrs that that does tie in a lot to like the whole like um Nazi saint thing, and how like as far as people will like promote people as like sacrificial lambs in cases and like put them on such such a big pedestal. Like th- th- this happened to Cal Rittenhouse a lot last year. It's 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 the same thing. Someone does this thing, and now we need to support them as this hero. And yeah, that happens all the time. That ha- if you know if you're if you're more extreme, it, that'll happen to mass shooters. If you're just moderately extreme, it'll happen to someone you know like Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, I, I actually want to we we did a whole bit on Kyle Rittenhouse because I feel like that was the peak of media martyrdom because it's yeah. when you talked earlier about how social media works towards the extremes, that extends to IRL. Yes, and it, we when we saw it happen in like a, we watched it in a three stage process. First, we watched the uh, Kavanaugh hearings and and those those the protests of that and and the. Oh, you're, you know, this, this man, this white man is being uh, beaten down, you know, and then it moved to, then it moved to Nicholas Sandman that happened just a few months later. Yeah. And it was like, oh, well, we're being targeted because of our hat. And then it later was McCloskey. And then a a young man, a teenager with an illegal firearm kills two human beings during a protest. 
and becomes valorized in this act. And it reminded me of how YouTube creates this or these or online, you promotes the, the, the fringiest aspects of it to make that the most uh, eyes first or, or attention grabbing thing. And, and that valorization, that, that reward based system creates a, an actual system that makes me worried for white boy summer, because as we're now in summer and we're seeing potentially protests and movements being uh, activated in real life, the oppositional, how do these memes become oppositional to the Black Lives Matter movement? And how dangerous are these memes as weaponization against a movement and potentially the onboarding of literal danger? I'm not talking about online danger. I'm talking about physical violence. Yeah. But yeah. Like in-person stuff. Yeah. We saw, like, we saw that kind of foreshadowed with Patriot Front's little flop a few days ago in some ways in terms of like in-person organizing. Oh, right. In Philadelphia. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, of course, because Patriot Front has only been cringy. <laughs> That's that's fine. No, I'm sure eventually they'll they'll do something horrible. But so far, they've just been committed to being the cringiest Nazi group there is, which is great. But they also have tons of numbers, so it's also scary because if they wanted to do something, they absolutely could. But yeah, I, I did a lot of work on the Kyle Rittenhouse thing because I feel personally attached to that because I was the one that ID'd Kyle the night of the shooting uh, before he got arrested. So I did like a lot of work in how Kyle became a hero. Um, I, I, I wrote a Bellingcat article on it that has not been published yet. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think ever will be, actually. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a, it's about how I ID'd Kyle and how he became this hero in this specific world and how... Oh, like, my God, I would love to read that. I could send you a PDF. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so like I've, I've done like a lot of... Uh, yeah, I've been, I spent a lot of time last year in Nazi chat rooms collecting as many memes about Kyle as I could... Um, and watching how they talk about him. Because at that point in the summer, it was super tense. And we were really concerned that because Kyle did this thing, we'll see a lot more of it happen immediately. Like, we'll see, like, it's going to be like, you know, the first domino that, get, that gets knocked over, and it's going to get carried out, like, exponentially. We were, we were really freaked out that would happen. For a few reasons, it didn't. Um, if we want to go into some of, those, some of those reasons, we can. I have an idea for some of them. Some of them I probably can't explain, but there's like a list. Of, there's there's a list of a few that kind of that kind of um, explains why that didn't specifically happen. So, but yeah, there there, there is you know the immediate he, heroification, turning the people almost into like you know Jesus figures, Messiah figures. You see a lot of memes like putting them on like religious pedestals, like often like photoshopping like onto like actual pictures of Jesus. It's it's real weird. It is it is, and it does remind me a bit of like all these reiterations of martyrdom from Catholicism to present, specifically in the farthest right spaces. And it is almost like that, the joke, the it's like you call it irony pill. It's like this placid, I won't show emotion towards these effects. But I do see the the Rittenhouse event as like the, the peak level of a, a way of victimizing someone who's not the victim. And I think that is really interesting. Like, I, I think that's something that I think news media really has to get a grip on that. That is the level of weaponization that we're at at this point. And I would consider that, I would say moving forward, and, and I'd love your point on this is, a baseline of, of a tactic for moving forward for them. Yeah. And I think a lot of, in terms of like the threats of like violence at demos and the threats of violence against, you know, BLM protesters or quote unquote Antifa, I think a lot of liberals and people who claim they're like political, but don't do much besides online, they're not really aware of how vilified BLM got last year in terms of like the alt-right and like the alt-light. Like they, they, you, people really don't realize how much of a boogeyman people intentionally made it out to be. Like, like, at it, like Andy No, it was extremely effective in terms of painting BLM Antifa as a term and how, like, 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 like those two things together um, and how that app contributed both to the Capitol riots. Um, and contributed directly to, to Kyle Rittenhouse killing two people. That's a very specific thing that changed last year in terms of BLM. Because like before then, BLM wasn't popular among the right wing, but it was not vilified on the same level of like the, of them talking about it as like a big threat of terrorism the way it is now. Like it is that that changed significantly last year in terms of how the far right views views BLM and views quote BLM Antifa. So. You know, we've had, you know, we a few weeks ago, we had someone who has 
we are not quite sure their political ideology. They're they're right wing. They're very pro Christian. Who uh, killed someone in Minneapolis by re- intentionally running their truck into a crowd of BLM protesters? We saw a massive spike of vehicle attacks last year. I saw dozens and dozens in Portland. Um, some of them resulted in pretty bad injuries. Some of them uh, people were able to move out of the way from and were, were fine. But like the sheer number of vehicular attacks skyrocketed to an absurd degree last year. And we saw a decent amount of, of violence with firearms um, in terms of like actual violence, in terms of like what Kyle did. Um, and a lot more firearms getting pulled on people. Uh, we had, of course, Alan Swinney in Portland pull a revolver um, on people and like pulled back the hammer um, at, a, at a demonstration. We had them tr- uh, that similar group of people trying to distribute weapons at other protests in Washington state. Inside Olympia, Washington, we had like two people uh, fire guns at BLM demonstrators last year. I think I think I doxed one of them, um, or at least I like posted like I, I was able to find out who they were, um, and then they uh, like after they were arrested and talk about like their political ideology. Bullets, I think bullets hit at least one person. Uh, the person's fine; it, it grazed them, but that happened multiple times of people of of far people shooting guns. Uh, a few days after the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting, there was a big uh, car caravan in Portland, Oregon. Of, uh, of far-right people doing like a, a drive-by rally. Two people got out of their cars and were walking around downtown near a BLM uh, protest. Uh, they had like 70 rounds on them and they pulled a weapon on somebody and that's, that somebody shot them first um, in something that is probably an un... You know, in terms of self-defense escalation, that's a really tricky thing. I don't have the answer for if that's justified or really or not, because you have someone with 70 rounds on you pulling a weapon in a dark corner. Um, but that person ran away. Uh, the person who shot ran away. They were eventually assassinated by uh, federally deputized marshals. Um, of course, that, that case got pretty popular in terms of like far right using that as like an example of like Antifa going out and f- hunting down conservatives. Like, no, like the guy like came up to this dude and pulled a, pulled a weapon on him and he just happened to get shot first. Like that's like, that's, <laughs> and he had like 70 rounds of ammunition on him. Like he wasn't just, he wasn't just a Trump supporter walking around downtown. He was like part of this thing. So you're seeing a lot of, a lot of these things happening and a lot of, a lot of like extreme violence being uh, almost commodified as well. Cause like a like part, part of the like, memification and like sanctification of these figures is trying to you know make this violence look like a fun thing you can do to become a hero and make it like an acceptable option then you're like and then you're like marketing that option to the masses via memes so that's like a big part of what they're trying to do that's why we have this type of you know rhetoric online about you know shooting uh shooting queer people in all like the white boy summer channels and stuff and like it's 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 about trying to make trying to make this option available to extremists and then reassure them that if if this happens to you we're going to turn you into a hero and we've seen this going back to the christchurch shooting and the literal live streaming and gamification and everything you're saying is part of what steve bannon loves accelerationism which you reference in the article and trying to incite more violence and normalize it and mainstream it and help tear everything down as quickly as possible in this country And part of this normalization and platforming is in order to help mainstream this ideology and help it cross a particular Rubicon. And you write in the article that the ongoing attempts by the fascist right to infiltrate and build rapport with mainstream conservatives are more complex than any single meme. But every time someone like Fuentes, who has been posting regularly about White Boy Summer, garnering thousands of likes and retweets, pulls an elected leader like Rep Gossar, that would be Republican Congressman from Arizona, Paul Gossar, Closer to his orbit, the memes, terms, and beliefs he spreads risk growing more accessible to voters and the wider public. So can you explain how the slow crawl of white nationalism being accepted as an ideology is made even more at risk through White Boy Summer and what has happened since the article? I mean, yeah, that was that was like the that was the big tipping point for us publishing the article when we did is is the uh, with the um, Gosar question mark pronunciation planning the event with uh, Nick Fuentes. That was like the big thing. It was like, okay, I, I think I texted somebody. I, I, was, I was currently living in the forest for another project. 
but I was in cell service because I was going to a, a, a protest to do some recording. And I was like, we need to post this article today um, because we, we have, we've, been, we've been working on it for so long. And we're like, OK, this is like crossing over to something that actually is, you know, something is going to happen. There's going to be things going on and this is worth giving people this language so they know how to deal with it. But yeah, like the specific thing that Gosar has been like flirting with the past few months. You know, he went to like the American First Conf- he went to the America First Conference like a few months ago. And you know, there's a selection of like congressmen and senators who are flirting with this ideology even after January 6th. Now, of course, there was people who were like openly pro it on January 6th as it was going on. And then afterwards they had to kind of like backtrack a little bit. But even s- some people now have done the opposite. You know, there was like the one, the one guy who has seen like screaming and barricading a door inside I, I I don't know if it's the House or Senate. I think it's the House. Uh, this this one this one congressman who's like this picture of him like screaming and barricading a door shut because people are trying to get in. And then like a few then like you know a few months ago he went on an interview being like, oh no, it wasn't that bad. It, it was actually very similar to just like a tourist trip. And you're like, what? What like like the, the, you're saying like this is part of like a deliberate, you know, this is part of like a de- like a, a deliberate campaign across the right wing to repaint the January 6th thing as either a false flag or as not it's as bad as gaslighting it because, 100%. Yeah, it, 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 it's a gaslighting thing. They're trying to do a few different ways of doing it. They're trying to both say it was Antifa and they're trying to say it wasn't as bad as it actually, you know, seems to be. But like, you're like, dude, like you were like screaming for your life and like barricading your door shut with like security guards with guns pulled right above you and now you're saying it was no different from a regular tourist like trip this is the most obviously bad faith thing imaginable like you you were there you were screaming for your life like you know what it was but like politicians on the right are seeing with like how accepted and how normal and how um even like beyond normal like how like applauded trump's extremism was and like okay maybe we can get more popular if we get even more extreme than him let's you know a lot of you know the younger conservative vote is you know tied to this kind of uh ben shapiro stephen crowder and then nick fuentes type thing we need to find a way to appeal to them um and then maybe it'll attract you know the regular trump supporters too who of course became okay with extremely fascistic rhetoric and policies and this was like normalized and applauded and yeah maybe maybe more extreme things are going to become the norm. So you're seeing a lot of politicians start to flirt with this type of thing, whether you're like Matt Gates, whether you're Gosar, whether you're someone like Jim Jordan. You're seeing a lot of these people who are gaining popularity because they're seeing the extreme things. So then they get a lot of articles about them. And then conservatives see liberal media complaining about conservative politicians. They're like, oh, liberal media is complaining about this conservative. This conservative must be right because he's getting complained about. So then you just see their popularity skyrocket. That's why like Marjorie Taylor Greene got so popular outside of her state. We like, She's not actually that popular inside Georgia, but she's like a popular like right wing figure. She was before her like Holocaust accident um, when she like tweeted like talked about how she didn't know what the Holocaust was. But before then, she was like extremely popular outside of her state uh, because media played into what she was saying um, and gave her a lot of attention. You know, the similar thing happened with Trump. You know, I, I Trump would have had less chances of being elected if media didn't treat him the way they did in the first few months of his campaign. So I think a, a large portion of how we report on these type of people is very important. And luckily, with the White Boy Summer thing, I think Ghost Star has actually received a lot of backlash in terms of how that's been talked about online. Um, and thankfully, it has not really super emboldened him. He, like, it, it, at least he hasn't doubled down on it. He's actually he's, he's, he's like trying to backtrack, which is, you know, better than doubling down on it, I guess. Yeah. And I'm worried about the emergent new right, as you say, especially Josh Hawley, who definitely seems appropriate to include in this conversation. Yeah. I think the raised fist at the insurrectionists and the book that he published is hitting upon a certain type of populism that is imperative for the right to embrace if they want to sustain success. And I think they have no shame in doing so. And I do wonder about their national popularity and how it will affect their continued grift, which I think is just appropriate to call everything they're doing. But Garrison, this has been a delight. I know Jamie has one more question before we wrap up for today. Yeah, this is everything you've, I mean, this is, your work is incredible. I mean, this is important work that needs to go more noticed in, 
from a mainstream perspective, because this type of interpretation of what, what, what is now esoteric online material should be really something that is backroom, newsroom, broadly understood, because it's, it's really when we're starting to bend into these spaces of politics and onboarding and teenagers, and when it comes to like generational consumerism, just in general, memes themselves are playing such an incredible role in just the way that culture itself shifts and, and migrates and replaces language. So I've just seen too many news reports over like last year of somebody interviewing Milkshake and not taking that as like, this is a, a person that's obviously going to be speaking in bad faith in general. But I just want to ask you, what advice would you provide uh, for people who don't spend as much time being very online and their communities to keep safeguarded against white nationalism, white supremacy, and these ongoing dangerous memes? Yeah, I guess, I mean, the... The first thing would be like take people who are who live in this hell world like myself and fellow researchers like don't brush them off if they say something crazy because often they're right <laughs> like they there have been people screaming about what QAnon is going to turn into for years and no one really listened and then they tried to take over the government right and that's like we've been trying you know, people have been people have been trying to warn you it's just that sometimes the things we're saying can seem a little bit wacky and then we it doesn't get like believed. So like if people work in a field and they're followed by like a whole bunch of respectable people, listen to what they say. Like at least like at least at least be aware of it. Like the big problem about talking about these types of things, and this was this is what I asked when I was first doing like Bellingcat trainings. Is like I can't talk to anyone about this because as soon as I say anything. I will sound like the lunatic, right? I'm like uh, trying to like explain like Honkler and Clown Pepe and like Clown World. Like you sound like a crazy person. Like you can't like, there's no way of talking about these topics that make you sound not unhinged because it, it's, because it, it's an unhinged thing. It's a, it, like, so like you're going to sound crazy. <laughs> um, and you have to find ways of talking about these topics in ways that are approachable for people who do not live in the same hell world that I do. Um, and that's, that's, that's the tricky part. I mean, that's why I have, that's why there's people who edit articles on Bellingcat who do not write them. It's like, they, you know, this, cause there, there'll be some jokes or some things we say that will be like, no one understands what this means. You're like, okay, yeah, I guess this is, this is just a little too esoteric. I need to find a way to rephrase this to make it ex explainable to a, like a broader audience because it's really tricky because like because like you basically in order to like research these things you have to learn like whole whole new languages you have to hold like like words have totally different meanings it's a whole different like um a whole a whole different ball game of language and thought and communication and it's really tricky to relay that to people so i don't know yeah if someone sounds crazy just don't don't immediately write them off i guess <laughs> try to try to tr try to like wait it out and see if there's anything that you know, maybe like, oh yeah, this is the, this is you know, if you hear about something happening in the news, you're like, oh yeah, this is similar to what this person's been talking about. <laughs> right, right. Saying White Squall would be one of the most influential films of the 21st century in America would have sounded a, a little <laughs> bit nuts just a few years ago. I mean, yeah, like four years ago, if we said QAnon was going to try to was going to successfully break into Congress and try to kill senators, you're like, no, no. No, <laughs> like no, yeah, they did. But there was there, there was people saying that you know there's been people saying that for a while. Um, people explaining how this is very similar to like to other other political cults. Like it's his, it's the same thing getting played over and over again. And we should have listened to those people sooner because we've already paid the price for it. And there's already like five people died, right? And like this, it, it already has a death toll. So well, your work is incredibly important because this is the way that we become literate. Like this is how we literally understand these types of information. And I, I appreciate yours and Robert's work on Bellingcat because it does take this very, very large theme that is literally four or five months old and, and gives it to us in a way that we could kind of understand and give ourselves a heads up. So thank you so much for this work and your ongoing work and your ongoing uh, medal that you provide to yourself in, in Portland and, and, and the real world and everything. So we really appreciate your time today. And your existence really so thank you <laughs> yeah thank you for letting me uh ramble about nonsense for an hour <laughs> and garrison where can people find you and your work let's see uh you can find me on twitter at hungry bowtie i occasionally i don't know i i, I post a variety of things the, the latest thing is 
posting my new bow I got to do archery with. But also I post like articles. I post, um, sometimes I just do like investigative stuff straight to Twitter if I'm born lazy. And then, uh, so yeah, at, at, at Hungry Bowtie on Twitter. And then you can also hear me on podcasts like Behind the Bastards. Uh, I do research for Worst Year Ever and working on a new podcast with Robert Evans that'll come out in the next few months. You can also, if you're interested in, in the Portland protests, you can listen to our podcast, Uprising, A Guide from Portland, about how that everything went down uh, over here. Phenomenal. Thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and share it with someone you feel might find this conversation valuable. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can write to us via our website's contact form at digitalvoid.media or send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com. Tickets for Meme and the Moment are on sale now at caveat.nyc or digitalvoid.media. We can't wait to see you there. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.